The Second Mountain. That's the title of New York Times columnist David Brooks' 2019 book that explores the commitments that define a life of meaning and purpose. The first mountain of life is that journey you embark on in the first half of your life to be successful, to experience personal happiness. It's a commitment to yourself. Only to find that when you reach the mountaintop, you never get the real pleasure you pursued. That's when you realize there's a second mountain, a bigger and better mountain to climb. On the second mountain, life moves from being self-centered to others-centered. From solely seeking personal comfort to living a life of commitment to others. Brooks isn't the only one thinking about a life shift. A recent New York Times article highlighted one of hip-hop's pioneers, Sean Combs, or Puff Daddy, or P. Diddy, or his newly minted moniker, Love. The article talked about Combs' new solo album that just released, but more intimately, it, it peeked into Puff's new sense of purpose in life. The article noted lately, uh, Combs has been embracing the concept of the second mountain in which the challenges taken on during life's back nine trade self-involved ambition for goals that are more moral and benevolent. Combs commented, this, this second mountain is three times bigger than the first one. It got volcano coming down and rocks and avalanches. And you're like, yo, do you want to climb this mountain? Or do you want to just go for shelter and ride this thing out of life and die? If you've heard Puffy talk, you can probably imagine the kind of charisma and, and vibe that's going on there. Everybody's looking for a sense of purpose in life. Many have found that a life lived for self simply does not satisfy. And have embarked on a bigger, better journey to live for and help others. But what many have also found is that as they ascend this second bigger mountain, they don't have the resources to make the climb. Well, on our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul commends and commands a bigger, better mountain, a bigger, better life than living for self. But he also confronts us with the reality that the only way to live this kind of life is through faith in Christ, the ultimate one who lived this kind of life for us. The other-centered life might be neatly coined as the second mountain, but the others-centered life is fundamentally the Christian life. And you can't have it, and you won't live it apart from Christ. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 980. And Brother Adam, I have you, Brother Adam, I ask you to come turn this down a little bit. I see folks already freezing, so or turn it up a little bit so the temperature's a little warmer, right? Philippians 2, yeah, it's going to be all over the range, right? So I'll try to observe y'all's faces to see what, what, what adjustments we need to make. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. You can find it on page 980. Apostle Paul says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirits, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Friends here is what I think is the main idea of this passage, this wonderful passage, the main idea of the sermon. To be a Christian is to live like Christ, humbly serving others as Christ humbled himself and served us. To be a Christian fundamentally is to live like Christ, humbly serving others as Christ humbled himself and served us. As we walk through this passage, we'll hang our thoughts on two points which correspond to the kind of two parts we see in this text. You see it's broken up pretty clearly in verses 1 through 4 and then verses 5 through 11. So the two points that correspond to those two parts in the text. Number one, in verses 1 through 4, we see a seemingly undoable mandate. A seemingly undoable mandate. And secondly, in verses 5 through 11, we'll see an absolutely undeniable model. Point number one, a seemingly undoable mandate. Point number two, an absolutely undeniable model. First, a seemingly undoable mandate. In the previous passage, a few verses before this, the Apostle Paul has instructed these believers at the church in Philippi to live lives worthy of the gospel, even amid persecution from those around them. He reminded these believers that they were engaged in the same conflict as he had, and yet they need not fear nor flee because even something like suffering was a gift from God employed to advance his purposes and strengthen his people. And, and so what they needed to do was to stand firm together for the faith of the gospel. Well, here in the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul again is commending the Philippian church to contend together for the gospel and not to contend against one another. And he, and he does so by, by first appealing to their shared spiritual life. And look at verse 1. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and any sympathy. Now, Paul here isn't questioning whether the things listed in verse one are, are true. Rather, he, he frames things this way to, to stir up in the Philippians a kind of self-discovery, a self-affirmation of these qualities. He means for them to affirm what is asked. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes, they respond. There's much encouragement. Even as we suffer, Christ is, is holding us fast. Is there any comfort from God's love? Yes, there's much of it. We know that the Lord loves us and that suffering is not punishment, but a gift from his hand. Is there any participation or, or fellowship in the spirit? Yes, the spirit lives in us. He's helping us in our weaknesses. Is there any affection and any sympathy? Yes. Not perfectly, but it's there. We love each other. We love the Lord. We love you, Paul. We care for you. Well, Paul says, okay, then, if you can affirm all these things as realities, since all the things in verse 1 are true, then verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 18, if you look back there, Paul said that he rejoiced because Christ is proclaimed. Well, here it seems that that was just a partial joy. 
His joy can be completed by the Philippians being fully united. That's Paul's main command here. In, in essence, to, to be united as a church. Paul shows us here something of the mature Christian perspective. We don't just rejoice when the gospel goes out. We don't just rejoice when people make a public profession of faith, like we'll see later and get baptized or join a church. Right? All those things are legitimate reasons to rejoice. But our joy is consummated when brothers and sisters in the church stay in the church. Stay together, bearing up under burdens and bearing with one another. Being built up in unity. You, you see, it's very true that as Christians, we are already united in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that through the cross of Christ, he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that stood against us. He made us both one in Christ. Right. He's united us both to God and to one another. But in Ephesians 4, we also read we're commanded to be eager to maintain that unity and a bond of peace. And if you've ever tried to maintain something, whether it's a car or your house or a lawn or a relationship, you know it requires work. Well, it's the same thing with maintaining unity in the church. You can't let that thing just go on autopilot. It's going to crash like some of them Teslas are. Sorry for my Tesla folks, right? <laughs> no, no, you're going to have to put in some labor there. It takes a lot of effort. Because inevitably, there are going to be some problems. I mean, you know that personally. You put any amount of people together for any amount of sustained time, even godly folk, especially, and some sort of conflict is unavoidable. I mean, for one, because the church is not a monolithic group. There are all kinds of people that make up a church. People of different ethnicities, from different backgrounds, with different personalities, with different temperaments, with different voting patterns, with different struggles. I mean, yes, we, we all have the same Christ, but sometimes in a church, that's the only thing that we share. And as external persecutions and pressures from the world press in, and combined with our own internal desires and demands and distinctives. Often what gets produced is a combustible concoction of conflict, of beef between believers. Or what happens is that what gets created is these little cloistered cliques, these fractions. I got my little group of folk who I really rock with, who I get along with because they just like me. But Paul says here, these things ought not to be so. The whole church, different as it might be, is to be united to one another. This command Paul gives to be of one mind is, is the shared mind to live lives worthy of the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel with our lips and displaying the gospel through our gospel community. Through lives, live together in love that put a bright spotlight on our Lord. It's a powerful witness when folks see black and white folks, old and young folks, right? People from poverty and people from wealth binded together, bound together in Christ. What is it, they might say, that brings these folks together is loudly proclaims Jesus Christ. He's the reason. Right. He's the reason we can be Democrats and Republicans. He's the reason why we can vote or not vote. He's the reason we can like this or that thing and still love each other, Amen. even though we don't know each other because we know the Lord Amen. and we know the Lord is good and we know the Lord is powerful. How do we know? Well, look what he's done in our lives Amen. together. But you know that that kind of togetherness doesn't just happen. I mean, everybody wants you and I, T.Y., from Queen Latifah to the United Nations. But true unity, deep unity requires some things. Paul fleshes those out in verses three and four. 
how do you have this unity? Look at verse three. By doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Nothing? <laughs> I can't get one thing from my own desires, my own ambitions? No, nothing. It's the idea of not being self-seeking, not being self-promoting, not having a kind of self-promoting attitude. You know, the kind of mindset that demands attention, that feels like you deserve attention, that does everything, goes out of your way to get attention. It's a prideful mindset. We've said before, pride is, is, is not so much thinking too highly of yourself. Pride is often thinking too much of yourself, thinking too often about yourself. Uh, Paul says, don't do anything with the mind only to yourself. Don't do anything with the mind uh, to what you might get from others, whether it's praise or pity. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. We see here two contra flesh, two counter natural things. One is to consider to think of others at all. I mean, have you ever noticed how incredibly self consumed we are? You start the day thinking about all that you have to do, and you end the day lamenting all that you haven't done. You kirk out on folks on the road driving too slowly. Don't you know I've got somewhere to be? You bury your head in your phone in every single setting, oblivious to the people around you. It's so easy to live lives set on self-consumption, self-absorption, self-satisfaction. So Paul's challenge here is great. To just think of, consider others at all. But then there's an even greater challenge. Secondly, to think of others as more significant than ourselves. All right now, Paul, now you, you've gone a little too far now. I, I mean, we might understand if the text said, consider others as significant as ourselves. I mean, that's hard enough, right? But more significant? I mean, come on now, let's be realistic. Well, Paul says, I am being realistic because that's what humility really looks like. Lowering self to lift up others. And that's what it's going to take for relationships in the church to be bound tightly together. Not to primarily think of what we're owed, what we want most, but to think of others' needs above our own. And not because they're actually more important than us, not because they're actually more significant than us, and we're all made in God's image, but because we understand the natural propensity to think that we are specially made in God's image. <laughs> I mean, God got like the unique piece of dirt when he made me, right? We act like we are the most significant people in all the world. And one way the Lord means to wean us off this worldly perspective, this worldly thinking, is to put us in a church and to give us the opportunity to intentionally practice putting others first. It's what you see glimpses of sometimes. You see it when a younger person on the metro gets up and gives their seat to an older person to sit down? Or, or when you're in the, the checkout line and, and somebody seems to really be in a hurry, you're like, you know what, go ahead. You let them in front of you to, to ring out first. It's not that they're more significant than you, but it's the fact that you treat them as if they are. And when you do those things, it just feels instinctively right, doesn't it? Sadly, pictures of those things are seen less frequently in our society. Well, Paul says, but it's supposed to be the constant picture, the constant posture that's modeled in the church, right? The world might show glimpses. The church is supposed to have this constant mindset, this constant framework of putting others first, treating others as most significant. 
And it's not just the posture of the church collectively. For there to be unity in the church, each member of the church has to have this kind of others-oriented mindset. I mean, look at what Paul says in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Each and every one of us has to not just be looking out for what would best serve me, but actively seeking what would benefit my brothers and sisters. You, you know, I think this charge for every single member to adopt this mindset of serving others guards us from waiting for others to serve us and then complaining when it don't happen. I mean, maybe your first thought, thought when you read these verses is, well, ain't nobody here caring for me. Don't nobody look out for me. Don't nobody call me. Don't nobody invite me over. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling deficient in relationships, in fellowship. I pray the Lord would change that situation for you. But, but you know, if you live life looking to receive, if you live life looking for everything to be reciprocated, you will live a lousy life because you will constantly be being let down. But if you live life looking out first to the interest of others, you may still feel let down from time to time, but you'll be freed remembering that you're doing what God has called you to do, to be other-centered. You can't change or make other folks do what the Lord has called them to do, but you can be responsible for living out what God has commanded of you. So friends, don't keep a long record of what you are lacking, of what you have not received. Instead, consider ways that you might consider others first and look to their interests and not simply your own. I love how many of you are already modeling, already exhibiting this others first, others as more significant mindset here. I think of some recent deacon candidates that I've talked to. They didn't care about any titles, didn't care about any fame or prestige, any title might bring them. They didn't want to be considered as deacons to serve from selfish ambitions, but rather said that if it serves my brothers and sisters in the church, then I'd gladly do it. Oh, I think of one sister I talked to about the, the women's retreat that's being planned. She said personally, she feels like she's already got some, some good, deep, genuine friendships. And as, as more introverted, she really doesn't enjoy social gatherings like the women's retreat would be. And yet she said, frankly, but it's not just about me and what I like. Philippians 2 calls me to count others more significant than myself. And I need to think of other sisters. Amen and amen. And says, as you are already exhibiting this mindset, do so even more fervently. Count others more significant than yourselves and look out for their interests. How might that transform your marriage? Husbands, what would it look like for you to consider your wife constantly above yourself? Not waiting to be served like a king, but serving her as the woman, the queen, the, 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 the lovely wife the Lord has given you. Not to be squeezed to give you everything that you need to, to sustain, but to nourish cherish, provide for. You notice those words that Paul used in Ephesians 5 of what husbands are to do? So active. You are to nourish, cherish your wife above even yourself. Wives, I wonder what it would look like for you to proactively put your husband's interests first. When was the last time you thought of something that would bring him delight? Even if he ain't acting right. Kids, I wonder... Just how often, I wonder if you know just how often your parents put into practice this command. I wonder, kids, if you understand, and I, if I mean kids, I mean 18 and younger. If you understand how often your parents put you above themselves. Are you grateful for that? Maybe you think, but, but they parents, that's what they're supposed to do. 
but so are you. All right, you see, if each of us is to look out not only for our own interests, but also to others, let me ask you, how are you doing at that? The Lord's going to hold you responsible for that. How often do you think of your parents' interests when you ask for another ride? How often do you think of your siblings' interests when they want to play with a toy that you have? How often do you think of your classmates' interests? Or is life all about what you want? Now, what are other ways you might look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others? It might be having a hard, awkward conversation with another member. And not just letting unresolved tensions go and grow because you don't like conflict. That could be self-seeking, self-serving, simply giving you personal peace. But what will best serve your brother or your sister? What does your calendar or your phone log say about your stance on verses three and four? Are you making time to meet with other members? When was the last time you called another brother or sister in our church or simply shot them a text? When was the last time you did that with someone that you don't really know well? What we spend time doing tells us what's most significant to us. Do you look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others when you speak, when you post online? When you broadcast your thoughts to the world, do you think about whether it's helpful for other members at Temple Hills Baptist Church? Do you think if it builds unity or might seek to break unity? Or do you only think I have a right to speak? I have a right to say what's on my mind. True. But friend, what you have a right to do is not always right to do for the sake of the body. You know what that might often mean? It might mean keeping your strong thoughts and your strong opinions to yourself because you're not most important. Getting something off your chest, letting your opinion known is not what's most important. Count others as more significant than yourselves by sometimes remaining silent. There's so many other applications we could draw from this. So many other ways we can look out for others' interests, like coming to church every week, whether or not you feel like it or not, because you seek to build up other brothers and sisters, because you seek to encourage them simply by your presence. I mean, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tells us to, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together because assembling ourselves together is what the Lord uses to encourage one another. So when you say, it's raining today, I'm tired today, I got something else going on today, right? Notice that you're putting yourself first and not brothers and sisters. How about even where you live? Do you think of only what's best for me and my family? Friends, the nicest and biggest house, the nicest and safest neighborhood, the nicest and cleanest amenities need not top your list. What's the proximity to the church? What's the proximity to other members? Can I use this home, not simply as my own little haven, but as a hospital to help brothers and sisters who are hurting and need help? Friends, we can go on and on and on, but for the sake of time, let me just challenge you right now or later today, to write down maybe two or three concrete things, concrete ways that practically this week, you might consider others more significant than yourself and look out for their interests. Maybe talk about it over lunch with each other or text each other later. Bring them to evening service this evening. If you like, to, I'm gonna write it down, but it's gonna be hard. Bring it to evening service. Let's pray for what's hard together, right? Bring those things together, talk about those things. Write down maybe two or three concrete ways you might consider others above yourself. And make at least one of those ways include people outside of your home and include people that you wouldn't naturally do that to. Friends, do you find yourself sinking under the weight of what working for unity requires? If you find yourself thinking this is incredibly hard, almost impossible even, I can't do this. Nobody can do this. 
then I think you're right where the Apostle Paul wants you to be. Feeling like this is a seemingly undoable mandate. Setting us up to show us an absolutely undeniable model. That brings us to point number two, an absolutely undeniable model. Verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2 is one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible. It's one of the most important and Christ-centered passages in all the Bible. And many preachers preach from this passage at Christmas, Christmas time to speak about the incredible incarnation of Christ. Many professors do whole seminars on Christology just from this one passage. It's an amazing passage. But amazingly, Paul does not use verses 5 through 11 primarily to teach Christology. These verses are not an aside to verses 1 through 4. Paul figuring, oh, oh, okay, I've talked enough about ethical things, about what you must do. Now let me take a detour into deep theology. No, Paul uses deep theology to drive ethics. He's given the, the seemingly impossible mandate. Now, Paul says, let me show you this amazing model so that you might emulate it. Now look at verse 5. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, basically, the command here is to have the mind of Christ. What is this mind? It's the mind he just talked about of humble service for the sake of others. You know, the mindset that, that when you read verses one through four, you're tempted to bristle at, to buck against. You're tempted to, to put some caveats or restrictions on. All right, I'll try it, but I'm only going to do it up to a certain point. You know, that's how we often do with the commands of the Bible. Let's see what caveats or restrictions I can put on it. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus loved us without limits. Paul tells us remarkably in verse 6 that this Jesus, who though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by becoming a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When, when Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, it doesn't mean that he's lesser than God or, or some kind of little clay model of God. What he means is what the Bible says elsewhere, that Jesus is the image of God, the exact imprint of his nature. When you see Jesus, you are seeing in the flesh God. Jesus was and is God. Jesus was and is truly divine. That's the entire Bible's testimony. And friends, we need to cling to what the Bible says and not to what other people say. The Bible is the subject matter expert on Jesus, not the History Channel, not some college professor, not some deep sounding dude with YouTube clips or TikTok videos supposing to expose the truth about Jesus. You want to know the truth about Jesus? Then you read Jesus's words. You read the scriptures written by the apostles and the associates as the Holy Spirit carried them along to write. In John chapters 14 and 15, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit would come and teach them all things and bring to remembrance all the things that he said to them and testify about him. And friends, our New Testaments are products of the fulfillment of that promise. They rightly testify about Jesus, believe what they say about him. They tell us that Jesus is and forever has been God. If you want to explore the Bible's teachings on that subject, if you want to explore explicit passages that call Jesus Christ God, then take down these seven passages. I'm not going to read them. Just take down these seven passages, right, that explicitly call Jesus Christ God. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. John chapter 1, verse 18. John chapter 20, verse 28. Romans chapter 9, verse 5. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. The Bible tells us, those passages explicitly tell us that Jesus was and is God the Son. Equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in every divine perfection. But though Jesus was equal with God, clothed with all majesty, possessing all authority, being worshipped and praised by all the hosts of heaven, enjoying intimate fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, Paul says he did not count those privileges. He did not count the prestige rightly his as God as something to be grasped, as something to be held on to too tightly. It's something to be exploited for the sake of personal enjoyment and comfort. Rather, Paul says in verse 7, he emptied himself. When we read that Jesus emptied himself, it's not that he loses any of his divinity. It's not that he gives up any of his divine attributes, as some erroneously claim. Jesus didn't lose any of his divine nature. Well, what is it to empty himself? Well, look very carefully at verse 7. It tells us pretty clearly. He emptied himself not by losing anything. He emptied himself by adding to himself a human body. By taking, acquiring, becoming the form of a servant, namely being born in the likeness of men. Friends, human beings are the highest of all of God's creation. We're the capstone of God's creation. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, but we are not God. And so as high as man is, notice here how steep the drop is from heaven to humanity. From God to becoming a man is so low that Paul has to call it Jesus emptying himself. Jesus didn't lose any of his divinity. He was 100% God still on earth. He demonstrated that by the things that he did, like raising people from the dead. He demonstrated that by the things that he said, like, my son, your sins are forgiven. He demonstrated that by the things he received, like the worship of men. Jesus was 100% God and became 100% man. The son of God took on flesh for us. You know, oftentimes when we think of Jesus' humble sacrifice, we think only of the cross, which we're about to get to. But we don't think of the humanity of Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus itself was a deep act of lowering self for the sake of others. Now, I think it's important that Paul puts that here first to, to show how humble, how others focus a, a service Jesus' incarnation was. Because Paul has just called the Philippians, and by extension us, to humbly live our lives together every day, looking not only for our own interests, but also the interests of others. And if the only model we see of that is Jesus on the cross, as great as that was, we might be tempted to say, well, it only lasted a little while. It only lasted a, a few days. But no, Paul says, let me tell you something. Jesus' humility for our sake was seen in him first becoming a man and living life as a man for 33 years for others who rejected him. Amen. With others who were totally different from him. I mean, he was a man, but he was a sinless man surrounded by sinful men and women. Think of how deep the difference was between where Jesus came from to what Jesus came to. He came from the glories of heaven to the squalor of earth to live like us, to live for us. For our sake, he, he, he veiled his glory in a human body and suffered the indignities that no distinguished dignitary would dare put up with. The eternal son of God the high king of heaven came as a little baby needing to have his butt wiped. Yeah. 
He grew as a child, needing to learn things from the people he gave knowledge to. He recruited as his followers a bunch of lowly men who consistently missed the point of who he was and what he said. Who consistently bickered about who among them was the greatest when the greatest one in all the universe was in their midst. He put up with them. He bore with them. He labored to unite them in his purposes. Jesus deeply humbled himself for us simply by becoming a man. Oh, but he went even lower. Look at verse 8. Read, being found in human form. Jesus humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Friends, here is sacrificial love for others at its most deeply displayed point. The author of life succumbs to death, even though he didn't deserve to die. I mean, death is the consequence of sin. But Jesus never, ever once sinned. Not as a toddler nor a teenager. He lived a perfect life. But for us, he laid down that life and he took on our sins and died the death that we deserve to die. In the most humiliating fashion, in the most excruciating fashion, even death on a cross. It was reserved for the worst of criminals in Rome. It was despised as a sign of God's total rejection among the Jews. I mean, their scriptures told them that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But Jesus embraced all the pain. He embraced all the humiliation. And even more, he embraced all the wrath his heavenly father poured out on him for our sins. Because Jesus wasn't just thinking about himself. He was thinking of others. For his own sake, he could have hung tightly to his heavenly throne. But for our sake, he hung freely from an old rugged cross. Saints, look at what he's done for you. Look at how much he sacrificed himself for you. And you can't clear a couple hours off in your calendar to meet up with others? You can't inconvenience yourself for others? If Jesus was willing to lay aside his rights to think of you as more significant than even himself, why can't we do the same? Why won't we do the same? Friends, God isn't calling me and you to do anything that his son hasn't already done more of. And by his spirit who lives in us, we can do as well. By his model in the gospel, we are to be motivated and fueled to do as well. You see, what this is meant to be is gospel-driven obedience to God's word. But maybe you're here this morning still living in disobedience to God's word. Still living for yourself and rejecting Jesus' commands. Rejecting Jesus himself. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning knowingly rejecting the Lord, or maybe feeling in your heart that you know you're not sold out for the Lord, you're kind of trying to play two sides of the fence. You're neither hot nor cold. I pray that the Lord would heat your heart up by showing you the amazing self-sacrificial love of Christ for you and that you would turn to him. You know, many other religions call you to live right. Many other religions call you to serve others in order to work your way up and earn their God's favor. But Christianity is the only religion that tells you to live for others, not to work your way up to heaven, but to mirror what heaven did for you. Right. What the God of heaven did for you worked his way down, humbled himself. The king became servant. God became man. The sinless one became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
You can't deny that kind of love. You should not deny that kind of love. Why would you want to deny that kind of love? Ain't nobody loved you like Jesus loves you. Would you turn from your sins this morning? Would you lay down pride that keeps on telling you that you can figure this thing of life out on your own? Would you lay down the pride that that thinks you can turn around your marriage? That you can stop that sin that you know was a sin and you keep on trying to kick it and you know you can't. Would you lay down that pride that lives for yourself and would you lay down your life and give it to Jesus? Friends, some of you this morning need to stop fighting. You need to collapse into Jesus' arms and know that he will catch you. Turn from your sins this morning. Put your trust in Jesus Christ and you can be saved this morning. I want to talk more about what that looks like. Come talk to me at the door after service. Talk to anyone around you after service. We would love to tell you more about Jesus Christ and this amazing love for you and how you can know it for yourself personally. Jesus selflessly acted to serve us. He humbled himself by coming down, but he didn't stay down. Verses 9 through 11 tells us how God the Father responded to his son's selfless acts. And look at verse 9. We read, therefore. It's a wonderful word in the Bible, right? It swings things from one mood to another. Therefore, because of how the son has obeyed his heavenly father in humbling himself as a man and perfectly carrying out his plan to, to save sinners like us, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father. Friends, humiliation is not the end of the story. So if you're thinking, I can never worship a God who just became weak and suffered and died and was buried well good you don't have to because that God don't exist the God that exists is the one who in his son became weak and suffered and died and was buried and yet was raised from the grave and then ascended into heaven oh he lowered himself but the father lifted him up And he has lifted up his name above every single name in the entire universe. It's not just the name Jesus. Why do people name Jesus? Or Jesus. That ain't blasphemous. Now it's the name Yahweh. Lord that is his. So that every single knee will one day bow to him. And every single tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Back in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 21 through 23. Yahweh, the Lord, proclaimed, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. So turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Listen to this. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And here, hundreds of years later, in the book of Philippians, to this little struggling church, Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, applies those words of Isaiah about Yahweh, the Lord, to Jesus. To Jesus, every single knee shall bow and every tongue swear allegiance. Because Jesus is Lord. He is God, the Son incarnate, exalted forever and ever and ever. Friends, true humility will always be rewarded. Look at how God exalted Jesus. He will exalt you as well one day. If in humility now you submit your life to Jesus and for his sake you constantly live for others.
But if you exalt yourself in this life, living for self, you will be ashamed in the next. And will be forced to still acknowledge what you refuse to acknowledge here. That the once humble Jesus is the exalted Lord of all. You see, nobody is going to escape giving this confession. The question is, on what side of life are you going to give it? Before Jesus returns or after he comes? If you proclaim Jesus as Lord now, you will be saved forevermore. If you proclaim Jesus as Lord when he comes, when you're forced to bow the knee, when you're forced to swear allegiance, you will know him as Lord, but you won't know him as Savior. You will know him as your judge. And he will judge you for thinking that you could actually do you, do life without him. He made you. You crazy? He made you. He made you to be self-sufficient. He made you to rely on him. And even after you denied him, even after you and me refused to rely on him, he came so that we might have him. He desired to have us. Oh, I pray that you would have him. Friends, don't let it be you bucking against Jesus now, only to face an angry Jesus later. No, no, be what Christ has called you to be. Christians. And understand fundamentally that to be a Christian is to live like Christ. Humbly serving others. As King Jesus humbled himself and served us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing upon your word. Apply it to our hearts deeply and do not leave us untransformed. Conform us to Christ. Grow in us love for him. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.